The first scripture reading is from Psalm 112. I invite you to read along silently in your pew Bible. You'll find that on page 532. Praise the Lord. Happy are those who fear the Lord, who greatly delight in his commandments. Their descendants will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their houses, and their righteousness endures forever. They rise in the darkness as a light for the upright. They are gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with those who deal generously and lend, who conduct their affairs with justice. Friends, our second text this morning is a gospel text of Matthew. We'll be reading chapter 23, verses 1 through 4. You may follow along in the New Testament portion of your pew Bible by turning to page 24. Heal now the word of God for you and for me. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others. But they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. Let us pray. Gracious God, our creator, our redeemer, our deliverer, our strength, our leader and our guide, we come to you convening in this place of worship from all walks of life, from all spaces, hither and yon, praising you and thanking you for the in-person gathering of the witnesses to your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, God, as we enter into the sacred moment of hearing a message from you, may we be pierced in our hearts and our minds, and may we be open to the ways in which the Holy Spirit will inform us this day and the days to come. In your son Jesus' name we pray, amen. On February 12th, 1865, Reverend Henry Highland Garnett became the first African-American to speak in the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. His sermon was delivered on that day, a Sunday, within days of Congress's adoption of the 13th Amendment outlawing slavery. A number of representatives in the United States Congress thought the occasion merited a public religious service, and they extended the invitation to Garnett. His sermon was titled, A Memorial Discourse, but it infamously became known later as Let the Monster Perish. I recently stumbled upon this book, this story, as I combed through my email and noticed a book sale advertisement from the PCUSA. 
When I opened and scrolled, there were tons of written material and resources that would help refine my own faith formation, let alone others. In the left column of the page, situated in the lowest corner, appeared a dark yet refined male face, too small a print for me to discern their ethnicity or race. Curiosity led me to open up the link so that I could read the summation page. Right away, I was catapulted into a time and space as unfamiliar as writing in cursive to our Gen Z and Gen Alpha groups. Of course, I have not known chattel slavery by way of experience, and neither did the two generations living alongside me, those generations being the baby boomers of which my parents belong, and the silent generation captured in the essence of my 91-year-old grandmother. Still, for me, there was something poignant, something tangible, something raw, something far enough away that I could avoid being stained, yet close enough that the stench of whipped flesh and raw hide percolated the hairs of my nose. See, this overture was recaptured and published in 2018 by the 223rd General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. As I hurried my reading, hoping to unveil the intersection of the Presbyterian denomination and this man born into slavery, it became quite clear his fortune and his family's fortune was an 1824 escape to freedom in New York City. Reverend Henry Highland Garnett's life is chronicled in this reading and provides a rather meaningful timeline, including formal education, seminary training, service as the first pastor of Liberty Street Presbyterian Church in Troy, New York. He and his abolitionist wife, Julia Ward Williams, also lived in England for two years before he decided to serve as a missionary in Jamaica. In 1857, he returned to the States to pastor at Shiloh Presbyterian Church in New York, now known as St. James Presbyterian. While he had fled a white mob during the three-day draft riots in New York, he ultimately settled in D.C. to serve as pastor of 15th Street Presbyterian Church. It was during this tenure that he addressed the U.S. House of Representatives at the invitation of Abraham Lincoln. But what drew me to the study of this very courageous and historic moment was much less profound than his list of calls to parish ministry. There were three things that would not close my mind's eye. The first, of course, was this sensational sermon title, Let the Monster Perish. The second was his selected sermon text, Matthew 23, 4, to be specific, and the sheer magnitude of courage it would have taken to stand before a political audience to deliver such a polarizing and dangerous message. The third and final intrigue is simply the fact that we share the same birthday. He was born on December 23rd, 1815, and exactly 164 years later, I would be born on December 23rd, 1979. And since I do not believe in coincidences, it seems quite divine 
that his Presbyterian journey and my Presbyterian journey would choose to collide in this way and at this moment. Furthermore, this moment also requires your participation. Your being present and your desire to not only hear my words, but to courageously open your hearts and minds to the guidance of the Holy Spirit and a radical commitment to the just cause of equity. As we, in our context here at first, wrap our final Sunday school session engaging the theme of social justice, it became apparent and appropriate to close this series, mark this time, as he did, audaciously and boldly celebrating the 13th Amendment, ban of slavery, and a plea with humanity to never let it rise again. Let us turn back to the text for a moment and examine the possibilities of its interpretation outside of a marginalized lens. I will begin by stating what my New Testament professor, Dr. Susan Hyland from Candler School of Theology suggests that most of us do not expect to hear Jesus say. And that is what is written in Matthew 23, verses two and three. The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. Can that be right? It's tempting for many to skip over this part of Jesus' teaching. The criticism of the scribes and Pharisees that follows is more familiar and perhaps more comfortable. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. However, we will misunderstand Matthew's gospel if we ignore the first part of the instructions. The scribes and Pharisees teach others to follow God's law and they are right to do so. I don't know about you, but the hypocrisy seems unfathomable and unrighteous. Modern interpreters of Matthew somehow managed to convince ourselves that Jesus opposed the law. In doing so, we are conditioned by many centuries of Protestant interpretation and by our own experiences of Judaism as a religion that is wholly separate from Christianity. Yet, from the very beginning, Matthew has been clear to point in the other direction. Jesus says, I truly or truly I tell you until heaven and earth pass God's commandments like you shall not murder and you should not commit adultery. Throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus is critical of the Pharisees. However, he is not critical because they keep the law. For example, in one case, Jesus criticizes the Pharisees for preferring their traditions over God's command to honor father and mother. Matthew away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. He goes on to teach what it means to keep the commandments. Similarly, in this passage, Jesus is critical of the Pharisees' actions, but only because they do not practice what they teach. The Pharisees' teachings are not a problem, but in their practice, the observance of the law becomes a burden 
that falls on the shoulders of others while the Pharisees reap public acclaim. Matthew characterizes Jesus as an excellent teacher because he interprets the law with an eye to God's larger vision for the love of humanity. The Pharisees serve as a literary foil against which Jesus' interpretation of the law stands out. In particular, Jesus teaches others to keep the law in a way that also meets the demands of God's justice and God's mercy. Jesus' actions are consistent with his teachings. Throughout Matthew's gospel, readers have seen Jesus practicing the law in light of God's justice and mercy. He keeps the Sabbath while bringing God's wholeness to people. He honors the Sabbath and feeds the hungry. He cures the leper and sends him to the priest. Jesus' message is similar to the prophets who went before him. And we like to credit Jesus for offering a new teaching. But the message he speaks here runs deep throughout Judaism. One example is from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. It says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, which Jesus quotes twice in Matthew's gospel. One of these references is Jesus' response to criticism that he eats with tax collectors and sinners. The type A and Enneagram 1 in me just bursts with unspeakable joy as Jesus sarcastically answers, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to, to call not the righteous, but sinners. Later, Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 again when he is criticized because his disciples pluck grain on the Sabbath. He responses, his responses do not mean that tax collecting and sinning are good, nor does he argue that keeping the Sabbath is bad. However, Jesus suggests that keeping the law without exercising mercy does not fulfill God's expectations, which is what makes the rise and in integration of AI a little bit frightening for me. Um, as it stands, AI lacks the capacity to show mercy or grant grace. But Tony already completed that series, so we'll move on. The idea that God's law should be practiced with mercy was not unique to Jesus, though many Christian interpreters have suggested that it was. Interpretations of this passage often suggest, intentionally or not, that Jewish norms of the time upheld legalistic observance of the law over the practice of mercy. This is a mischaracterization of first century Judaism. It is better to see Matthew as portraying Jesus with ideals that are deeply Jewish. God's law is a gift to help humans live in a relationship with God and one another. Humans need guidance and understanding how to interpret and apply God's word to their lives. That is why Matthew characterizes the Messiah as a teacher. Matthew 23.10, he says, nor are you to be called instructors for you have one instructor, the Messiah. Jesus is a teacher par excellence because he interprets God's law in a way, takes seriously the demands of God's justice and mercy. Living according to God's word means living as a servant. 
the greatest among you will be your servant. Jesus's criticism of the Pharisees suggests that the problem is that they use the law as a pretense to receive honor from others. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. This description rings too true for many of us. We love the trappings of living according to God's word. We set ourselves up for applause, but it is easier to appear pious or to instruct others regarding their faults than to implement God's commands in our own lives. Jesus' interpretation of the law underscores that humans are on a level playing field. God extends mercy to all, including the tax collector and the sinner. The one who seeks attention and status through God's law misinterprets it. The attitude of a servant is more appropriate for the servant shapes their actions according to the master's will. Jesus shows us a master whose expectations are high, but they are guided first and foremost by mercy. Hence the need in our Reformed tradition to be a people who, as a tenet of our faith, continually reforming. As such, if we desire to be honorable, not for our own sake, but for the sake of right relationship with a loving, caring, just, and merciful God, we too will boldly denounce bad religion. That bad religion which casts down the downtrodden. In a moral game of life, humanity has little room to indulge hypocrisy or perpetuate supremacy that does not affirm the Holy One who is supreme. So Jesus exposes how the Pharisees impose suffocating rules upon people to watch them suffer and bask in their own moral superiority without showing an ounce of pity. Monstrous indeed is what we all could be if it were not for the witness of the marginalized, the stranger among us, the voiceless, the motherless, the otherness, and every way, despite our similarities, we dehumanize what appears different and ostracize that which we are either afraid or unaware. What monster is present in your life? What is that shadow portion of yourself that yearns for redemption, yet has grown too ugly for you to name or accept? Where does the nature of the beast that lies dormant in your soul find rest? How do you, how do we, confront the contradiction of teaching that which we do not obey? When do we decide to let the monster perish. I mentioned earlier in this sermon um, that some of the similarities that Reverend um, Henry and I have are our birth dates. Uh, and I don't know if there are any number aficionados out there, but you know, when I see numbers and things, um, it, it really excites me. Uh, and I think that there's something divine in that. And, and so as I continue to study um, just this, this text in Matthew and the similarities between myself uh, and this ancestor of mine some 164 years before I was born, um, I realized that the day 
that Abraham Lincoln allowed him to speak before Congress, more specifically to deliver a sermon as an African-American Presbyterian um, pastor, was on February 12th. And I said, this, these, these numbers, they look really familiar. Um, I wonder why. Um, and and I, I realized um, the numbers transposed instead of 12, 21, that February 21st, 2013, was the day that I checked myself into an alcohol rehabilitation facility. It was the day that I let the monster in me perish. And so I bring that to your attention as we continue this sermon. Um, I'll be closing soon, but, but also as we think about not just the individual monsters, if you will, um, that we may struggle with or wrestle with, but what it means to be a community of faith, of Christians, um, and to recognize the monsters around us, um, to speak awareness to them, and what it might mean to diligently work through those for reconciliation um, between one another. You know, I, I share this story often. Um, for those of you that have experienced any type of uh, addiction or obsession like shopping um, or watching football when, you know, you could be doing something else, um, you can identify too because there's some similar behavior characteristics there. Um, but, but, but the moment that this became really important in my own faith formation and my life's work, and at the time I had no concept of this monster um, that needed to perish in my life, um, I, I picked up something that I, you know, had long uh, let fall by the wayside, and, and, and that is my, my son and my daughter, they're sitting to the left, and he's 20 now, and I think 10 years ago he was 10, and I was still saying I was carrying around baby weight. Um, and so uh, after going through rehab and, and really regaining uh, some time that I lost from the obsession of, of the addiction, um, I started to um, take better care of myself. I started to go to the gym and work out a little bit, and on this one particular day, about a month after uh, rehabilitation, I entered into a 12-step recovery program, and I stopped at a convenience store not far from my house. At that convenience store, my intention was to purchase a banana. Um, being from the military, I had a little bit of knowledge about you know, what kind of things were good for your health and that you should eat to recover after working out, and so I, I stopped to get this banana. Um, and as I came around the back of the store, um, I passed by several coolers, you know, the, the Gatorade, the Powerade, the sodas, and all of this stuff. And there was this tall aluminum glass or aluminum container that caught my attention. And it was called Monster. And I thought, oh, an energy drink. Never entertain an energy drink um, a day in my life. And so I, I grabbed it. I went to the counter. I set my banana on the counter. I set the Monster drink on the counter. And as I'm waiting uh, for the gentleman behind to, uh, to ring up my items, I started to read or just peruse what was on this, this monster canister. And instantly tears started to pour down my face. Uh, and it startled the guy behind the counter because he, he had no clue what was going on. He said, are you okay? <laughs> and I said, well, I don't know, I think so. And uh, he says, should I call an ambulance? And I was like, uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I don't need an ambulance. And, um, and he said, well, if you don't mind me asking, um, what's causing you to cry? 
And I told him that I had just um, 30 days been out of an alcohol uh, treatment facility. And I had never picked up an energy drink before. Um, I said, and I picked this one up, and the name is Monster. But what was troubling to me is at the bottom of it, it said, unleash the beast. And that frightened me. And I realized at that moment that I had some other areas in my life, um, not just the symptom of alcoholism, um, but I had some unprocessed things uh, from my adolescence that I needed to face, that I needed to heal from, um, some other monsters, if you will, that I needed to let perish. And so I share that story, one, uh, in transparency, um, two, for hope and encouragement of anyone who might be able to identify with that, but also as an encouragement um, that as we travel through the rest of this week, this month, I know children are headed back to school, so stresses are probably really high um, with families and the like, um, but to really encourage us both individually and corporately um, to take a look and to sift through those things that we may struggle with and those things that may be strongholds to hold us back. I'll close the sermon with uh, one of my favorite authors, didn't know it until seminary. Um, her name is M. Sean Copeland. And she wrote a book uh, called Knowing Christ Crucified. And what I really loved about this book is um, having grown up in the Baptist, Black Baptist tradition, um, there is a certain um, hermeneutic style uh, that is rooted in black history and the way that we recognize or um, exercise our faith with Jesus Christ. And so she really spoke to a lot of the things that I experienced growing up um, and things that had kind of come to a head in seminary. And so M. Sean Copeland says this in her book, uh, there is no more concrete example of the cost of self-transcending love than the cross of the crucified Jesus. And it is from the ground beneath his cross that Christian discipleship as solidaristic praxis or compassionate action arise and is always judged. Therefore, in the spirit of my ancestor, Reverend Henry Garnett, I close with this salutation. He says, with sincere respect, and reverence for the institution and the warning given by our Lord and in humble dependence upon him for his assistance. I shall speak this morning of the scribes and Pharisees of our time who rule the state. In discharging this duty, I shall keep my eyes upon the picture which is painted so faithfully and lifelike by the hand of the Savior. Allow me to describe them. They are intelligent and well-informed and can never say either before an earthly tribunal or at the bar of God, we knew not of ourselves what was right. Amen.